0: You know that I would be a liar if I were to say to you, Buddha, we can go no higher. Come on, Buddha, light my fire. Come on, Buddha, light my fire. Try to light the night on fire. Time to hesitate is through <laughs> No time to wallow in the mire There's nothing we can lose Da 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 da, da.
1: <laughs>
0: Come on Buddha light my fire Come on Buddha light my fire Try to light the night on fire. Happy Mother's Day to you. <clears throat> there's, still, there's still some tea in this cup, so I'm not going to pour it on the floor. But sometimes after I give a talk, I feel I've emptied the cup. And there's nothing more to say, but we can still have a conversation face to face. But then the cup gets filled again. (laughs) So here we are, and I have so much to say. For example, many people in this room are thinking of receiving and planning to receive and aspiring to receive the Bodhisattva precepts this year. Quite a few people have come and told me they are planning to receive the Bodhisattva precepts in December. So I suggest to you, a Bodhisattva, these Bodhisattva precepts are justice. And that these precepts are received and practiced in a conversation face-to-face. Just like I suggest that justice is received and practiced in a conversation face-to-face. I don't know if anybody was surprised when I said the Bodhisattva precepts are justice. Was anybody surprised? One person. One person was, one person wasn't. But in a way, oh oh boss, I want to confess to you that I'm I'm suspicious of myself I, I'm aware that I I'm at risk of slipping into rhetoric with you of, I'm, I'm I'm at risk of trying to convince persuade you about something there's a subtle difference between encouraging you and clarifying things and persuading you that they might be really good. I don't want to persuade you. I want to help you find uh, out that you really want to practice, for example, justice. I don't want to persuade you to practice it. And I certainly don't want to persuade you into what it is. So that's a danger here. And, I, and now I suggest to you <clears throat> that in face-to-face meetings, when, really, when there's genuine conversation, we, we abandon demagogy, pedagogy. We, we abandon trying to persuade people. We, we're, not, we're not trying to set up a bodhisattva empire. But then if I look at these precepts, I say, yeah, it looks like justice to me. Sometimes if, you, sometimes if you reverse it, it might be easier. Like I think most people, there's a precept number six on the list of the 10 major bodhisattva precepts, which is don't sl- not slander. Not don't slander. Not slander. Not slandering. So I think most people can see that slandering is really not just. To slander people is not justice. Like, You know, um, in the, one of the good things about the um, you that of the, the legal process in this country is that when somebody is in court, uh, uh, indicted for a, a major criminal activity, they still call the person Mister. They don't say, "Would the sleazeball please come forward?" They're going. To, they're trying to find justice, but in the process, they don't. They don't besmirch the person. They treat them with respect. If you're going to, if you're going to execute somebody for murder, you don't have to spit on them. Also, now some people say, "No, yeah, I think execution plus spitting. That's, that's justice." I don't know about that. I think you can administer justice with respect. I'm sorry, but you know we feel like you need to be in prison. Somebody, and, and maybe a lot of people agree. I would like it to be a conversation where the person who goes to prison actually says, yes, I think this is just. And I feel I've been treated with respect. And this is my justice. Also, it's not just to think that you're it's, it's OK to celebrate doing good, but not at the expense of others, of saying they're, they're not as good as you. That's one of the precepts, and that's not justice. It's OK if I think, well, that was good, if I don't put you down. Hating people is not justice. Being angry can be justice. Sometimes being angry is justice. But that anger is a conversation where everybody's participating. Killing murder is not justice. Not killing is justice. Not stealing. Lying is not justice. Not lying is justice. And so on. These are, these are justice. <laughs> And in Asia, they often speak of those as precepts. And then going for refuge in Buddha, uh, some Asians, uh, like in China, they well, that's not usually considered a precept. But in Soto Zen, starting in Japan, going for refuge in Buddha was seen as a precept. Going for refuge in Buddha is an ethical practice. And again, yeah, so that I would say Justice is to go for refuge in Buddha. Justice is to go for refuge in Dharma. Justice is to go for refuge in the Sangha, which, with whom you're having a conversation about what it means to go for refuge in the Sangha. The precepts are received in a conversation. If there's a piece of paper out in the entryway that has the precepts on it, you could say, Well, I can just go pick that piece of paper up, walk out the door, and go practice the precepts. Well, you can if you understand that that piece of paper was put there for you. Somebody gave that to you. That was a gift from somebody other who had received that gift from somebody other. They didn't steal that piece of paper, and and just drop it on the floor. They received it in in a conversation. And they gave it to you in a conversation. And if you don't understand that, you receive those precepts, then you have not received the precepts, and you're not realizing justice. And if you look at our ceremony that we do in this tradition, the person comes and says, may I receive the precepts? And the preceptor says, at some point, yes, you may. And then they have a ceremony. And the preceptor says, now will you receive these precepts? And the person says, yes, I will. They have a conversation in the ceremony and after they receive the precepts, the preceptor says, from now on, even after realizing the Buddha body, will you continue to observe these precepts? And the person says, yes, I will. It's received in conversation. And then from then on, it's practiced in conversation. Going for refuge in Buddha is practiced in conversation, of course, with Buddha. But of course, so with the sangha, of course, with the teacher, also with the Dharma. Conversation with these precepts is justice. And uh, the conversation is partly between Uh, individual consciousnesses, individual self-conscious, self-consciousnesses or individual conscious selves are having conversation with other individual conscious selves. The preceptor also has a conscious conscious self or a self-consciousness. and and talks, has a conversation with the person who's receiving the precepts. They're having a conversation. And this, this consciousness is pervading that consciousness. The other consciousness is pervading this consciousness. And they're talking. They're using language to realize justice. And also, as I mentioned to you, these consciousnesses, these clearings where there's light in the darkness. And now I'd like to just say a little bit more about the dark forest. I suggest to you that in the dark for that part of what's in the dark forest is y- your body and in particular your sense organs are in the dark forest. Each clearing, has physical sense organs emanating from it and feeding it. And and these sense organs are not consciously known, like I'm talking about them now. But I cannot consciously know my sense organs. And yet, I wouldn't have consciousness without them. And my sense organs are not shared by you, by your consciousness, except through my consciousness. And my sense organs are not shared by your sense organs. But both of our sense organs are in the dark forest. These sense organs are physical. And their physical form is a form of cognition that doesn't look like cognition also in the dark forest is a cognitive function which we share which isn't any more associated with my consciousness than yours and we and we an example of that is this teacup Now, the way this teacup is appearing in consciousness is not the teacup. It's a cognitive construction made depending on on the teacup and my sense organs, but also depending on the part of the forest that we share, which is where this teacup is. We unconsciously share this teacup and we consciously, each of us, has our own conscious rendition of it. And the teacup, which we share, is one of the main ingredients leading to the appearance of this teacup in our consciousnesses. The wall is another example. And this wall which is part of the dark forest, this wall is, is also now appearing in our, uh, Yeah, when I'm not looking at it, it's not appearing in mine. But, that, but, but anyway, n- this wall is appearing in my consciousness. And this wall, which is unconscious to me, I share with you. And the sense, my, the sense organs, which I don't share with you, are part of the way mm-hmm. the wall comes to appear in my consciousness. And the organ, sense organs you don't share with me are part of the way the wall comes to appear in your consciousness. But we share the wall. But I I cannot share how this cup is for me with you. Like I'm touching it now. My sense organs are interacting with it in the touch realm, but yours aren't. And yours are interacting with it visually, probably. Or you're hearing about it through sound. the way you're hearing and the way you're seeing is not the way I'm hearing and seeing and the way I'm touching it I don't think any of you are touching it this way but we're all ha- we all have this cup in our shared cognitive darkness and this cup Appearing in consciousness is not a physical appearance, of course. It's a mental image that looks, it's a mental image that looks not like a mental image. This looks like something that's not mental, but of course it is to me and it is to you. If you close your eyes, it's not, and you don't see the image anymore, But if you see this image in your consciousness, you're seeing an object of self-consciousness. It's not a physical thing, but it's a mental thing that looks like a physical thing. Now, the cup that's in the darkness is not a mental image. It's a physical thing. And it doesn't look like a physical thing. And it doesn't look like a mental thing. But it is a physical thing. And the way it's a physical thing is a deceptive version of how it's a cognition. So some of you are studying uh, the teaching of conscious construction only which is everything that appears in consciousness is just a conscious construction. For example, walls that appear in consciousness, feelings, political theories, everything that appears in consciousness is just conscious construction only. Material things are just conscious construction. But what? What was not revealed in that early teaching is that conscious construction only is a deceptive form of material. Conscious construction is a deceptive form of your neurological process. And your neurological process, which is not consciousness, is a deceptive form of consciousness. Well, you know, now nowadays some people say that your mind is just your brain, right? In other words, your mental activity is a deceptive form of a, of a material process. It looks not material. Like your joy doesn't look like a, a rock. But some people would say, well, your joy is actually just a... Uh, a uh, physiochemical, neurological process. It's, it's just your brain. In other words, what you think is mental, your opinions, what you think are mental, your thinking, what you think is mental, that's actually physical. And at the time that the in India, when this teaching about conscious construction only came up, which is saying all these material things like Brains, teeth, skulls, walls—all these material things that are appearing in consciousness—that look like material things—they're actually mental. They're actually a deceptive form of cognitive process. You know, like I don't look like an idea, but when I the the, the appearance of me in your consciousness looks like I'm not an idea you have about me, but I I am. And then some other people would would say, well, the idea you have is actually a physical event. The idea you, you have of me being not an idea, that idea is actually your brain. So if you look at an opinion, you think that's not a person you didn't think that's not a physical thing. If you're aware of a opinion, you think that's not a physical thing you think it's a mental thing well you're right. But somebody else could say that appearance of something that doesn't look physical is actually and you being aware of it, that's all physical but it doesn't look physical. and what looks mental, the Buddhist teaching is saying it, what looks mental to you is not excuse me, what looks physical in your mind is not physical. It's just a conscious construction. It's a cognitive construction. It's cognition you're seeing. There's an awareness of cognition of itself. But materialists would say that whole process is actually just matter appearing as not matter. So I would do it both ways, that everything that appears in your consciousness is... Consciousness only. But also, consciousness is material only. It's both. Our cognitive construction is in a dark forest. In the dark forest, there's material sense organs and material um, things like rocks and cups that are not sense organs. And those material things support the arising of this thing we call consciousness. So consciousness is supported by material things. But that whole field of darkness is also called, in this teaching, a cognitive process. But that cognitive process is a deceptive form of a material process. And all material processes are a deceptive form of cognitive processes. I just thought I'd mention that. (laughs) because <laughs> I'm apparently leaving town. This is, this is all going on around you, around your little clearing all the time. What's going on? A vast material realm, which is actually a vast cognitive realm. A vast cognitive realm, which is actually a vast material. In other words, matter and mind are versions of each other. And Buddhism, in the early part of this common era, had this great teaching that everything that appears in consciousness is just consciousness. Mountains are consciousness. Time is consciousness. Flags are consciousness. People are consciousness. This is a great teaching. And now I'm just turning it the other way. saying that cognitive process is matter. Matter is cognitive process, and cognitive process is matter. And our cognitive process, our consciousness, is a form of matter. And it's surrounded by matter, which is cognition. So that's a thing. And I see a bunch of hands raised. You're speaking with such clarity that I'm at risk of falling into delusion
1: in thinking that the way in which mind and matter are the same is something that is conceivable. Mm-hmm. And I
0: long to grab onto conception. Well, it, it is conceivable, and 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 the and your conception of it is not the way it is. But but. I'm talking to you in in language, and by having a conversation, we can do justice to what uh, this relationship is. So we have a relationship which is being proposed. I'm proposing a relationship between mind and matter. I'm proposing a relationship between conscious cognition and a surrounding field of cognition. And, I'm also, and then I'm proposing a relationship about that surrounding field of cognition called dark unconscious cognition with matter. I'm proposing these things, and we can have a conversation. In the conversation, we have the opportunity to do justice to what I'm saying, and to our mind, and to our matter. Our mind, which is matter in a certain form, and our matter, our, our body which is actually a version of mind. But it's a physical version of mind. And mind is a mental version of matter. And we're talking about that. And this conversation can lead us to do justice to this this topic. And to do justice to it means (laughs) to open to something that completely overwhelms our cognitive process, our conception. We're going to have a genuine, compassionate conversation to realize justice in relationship to our study of our mind and body. But our conception cannot comprehend anything about reality. But if we don't take care of our conception compassionately, we'll be trapped by our conception and not open to reality. Which again, just uh, cannot be contained by our conceptual process. But our conceptual process can open to it and be liberated by it. By what? By the conversation. The conversation can liberate us from our cognitive process, and do justice to everything that's appearing in it and everybody we're relating to. And if there's an impulse to grab or conceptually contain this process, that can be part of the conversation. And making things clear is good for bringing Impulses to cling out of the closet if there were any hiding. And then when they come out, we can be kind to them and l- help them l- give up. And not, you know, give up in the sense of understanding that they're trying something that is impossible. They can keep trying, but then they just know, I'm trying, I'm trying something that's impossible. So that lightens things up considerably. And when things get light, in the terms of the grasping, the affliction drops away. And then, we can, and then justice, if you excuse the expression, justice triumphs <laughs> in, that, in that conversation. But we don't get rid of the impulse to get a hold of the reality of things. And we don't get rid of the impulse to get rid of the illusion of things. you know, the the, uh, grasping is kind of appropriate to illusions. Illusions are actually produced for the sake of graspers. (laughs) Got some graspers here? We got some illusions for you. (laughs) And then the way we work with this will free us from believing that the grasping is a grasping of reality. And then we start to open to, well, how about... Well, we wouldn't be grasping reality, right? Right. But can we have a relationship with it? Right. Yes. And what if I try to grasp it? Well, then you're, trying to, you're reducing reality to a graspable illusion, which we're doing already. So you don't have to do that anymore. I mean, you don't have to do that with reality. How are you doing? <laughs>
1: i huh? I still feel a little impulse to
0: grasp. Um, yeah, OK. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna be kind to you and let you ask questions <laughs> even though you still have an impulse to grasp. You're still you know, my friend. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'd love
3: it if you would say more about how
1: matter is a deceptive form of cognition. You would, okay. So I think
0: I would love that. Yeah. See, I might it, I- <laughs> yeah, you might okay. Anyway. What, even if you wouldn't love it, you still would like me to do it. You don't know if you're, how you're going to feel after I start. <laughs> and also you don't know how you feel if I won't do it. <laughs> you might feel really relieved. I'm gl- really glad you didn't talk about it. <laughs> so that word was the beginning of a conversation. Um, There's no clearings without the forest, right? I mean, it wouldn't be a clearing if there wasn't a forest that wasn't clear all around it. Whatever the shape of the clearing, it's the clearing in the forest. Whatever, it's totally, they, they depend on each other. Conscious cognitive awareness, where there's a self, depends on sense organs. So I'm of the school that says there's no consciousness floating around without sense organs. And there's no sense organs that are functioning, that are not relating to, and sense organs are material And material is located. Material, you you know, is like here rather than there. You know, or if it's there rather than here, it's located, and you can you can uh, touch the material with other material. And the other kind of material is not sense organs. It's stuff like light, smell, tangibles, tastes, and sounds, which are mechanical waves, electromagnetic waves. These are physical things, Okay? It's a physical thing. And here's a physical thing. This physical thing is sensitive to that physical thing. We do not know much about, I do not, I do not know much about. I know, there's, I know a little bit about it. There's a little bit of a relationship, <laughs> of a sensitivity between material things that are like electromagnetic radiation. There's a little bit of sensitivity on the part of the radiation to the sensor. But there's a lot of, there's, in a way, there's a bigger, from our perspective our, of conscious beings, there's a much bigger impact of the electromagnetic radiation on the, sense field, on the sense tissue. So the sense tissue is like this thing called, the, what's sensitive to electromagnetic radiation is called the eye organ. It's a physical thing. It's located. My eye organ is not all over the universe. It's, it's right around here, which is related to my consciousness. It's located, and it can be touched, by electromagnetic radiation here. A physical thing can touch it. And this is a physical, this, this is supposed to be physical stuff, right? And when the physical thing touches it, we have an interaction between the sense data and the sense organ. The sense field and the sense organ. They interact. When they don't interact, we don't have a sense field. Electromagnetic radiation isn't a sense field until it's touching a sense organ. And a sense organ isn't a sense organ until it's being touched by something. And it's touched at a location. For example, the eye tissue is touched at the place that is, and the electromagnetic radiation becomes sense data. When it touches the eye, before that, it's out there. I don't know what it's doing. We don't know what. Maybe some machine knows. We don't. It touches. And when it touches, we have two conditions for consciousness. And they're physical things, which are conditions for consciousness. And there's one more condition for physical consciousness i mean for self consciousness where we live and suffer and have conversations which are going to liberate us quite soon <laughs> another ingredient is that there was that there is and was a sense consciousness before this one so the one before which is not here anymore is a condition for this physical interaction becoming a consciousness. This consciousness which is not physical depends on and is physical things. So this physical interaction doesn 't look like a physical interaction, I mean even if it 's a uh, when it appears in consciousness, it looks like a physical thing it looks like a light it looks like a color but actually, what we have now is a mental thing about a physical thing that 's really composed of an interaction between physical things, so it 's a mental thing that doesn 't look mental and is but uh and it's based on a dance between physical things, and it's also based on a previous cognition. But also, the, and then you can reverse it and look at well, these physical things are not just physical because this, the electromagnetic radiation isn't a sense data until it touches this other kind of materiality. But when it touches, suddenly it's the conditions for consciousness. So, the So there's no basis for apprehending the physical and no basis for apprehending the mental. And this is called perfect wisdom. Now, you can apprehend. It's a free country. You can apprehend. However, we're talking about wisdom as being not apprehending it. And if you study this process, you realize you cannot apprehend physical things because they're actually mental and you can't apprehend mental things either because they're they're actually a form of physicality but then you know you can't grasp either so you can't grasp anything and we can talk about everything and if we realize that we're talking about everything and that's To the extent that we understand this is a conversation, that's perfect wisdom. So we're having a conversation now. And to the extent this is a conversation, it's perfect wisdom. If we think there's something more than this conversation, then to that extent, we have less perfect wisdom. Is that enough for you now? Are you even happier than you thought you'd be? (laughs) We love conversation, especially if we understand that one's going on. We, we suffer when we don't understand that we're having a conversation, which means we suffer when we don't understand this is justice. Justice is reality. Conversation is reality. And not being able to grasp anything is reality. But. Realizing that, we do not ever disrespect grasping. We respect anybody who's grasping, or any grasping that anybody's doing. We respect that. That's a key ingredient in the conversation of justice, the conversation of liberation from this whole this process. Yes, Lisa?
4: Um, in my numb understanding of the vastness, the vast subject introduced all the way in the beginning, I think I also had an urge to grasp and thought I heard you say, please correct me if I didn't, if I misinterpreted or interpreted, that um, so when I close my eyes and um, the Things like there is another. In the moments that I can be in my body, there's another way of listening, there's another way of looking. uh, And there are things I sense there uh, that are not permanent. But I thought I heard you say those sensations and those things in that habitat are also as real as matter that's outside even though
0: they are only perceptible to my consciousness. Well, you said that just now. What you, that was you talking, right? Yes, I thought you yeah. said that, but I wasn't sure if I... I didn't, no, it. I didn't say what you just said, but you did.
4: Did I make it up?
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was made up, but not, just, not by you. You don't make up what's in your consciousness. You, who is in your consciousness, are not making up what's there. <coughs> but what's there is made up by all of us. And I have, I'm responsible for everything that appears in your consciousness. I am. <laughs> I am. And I accept responsibility for whatever is in your consciousness. But I don't make it by myself, and you don't either. And you're responsible for the things you don't make that are in your consciousness. I'm saying that to you. Did you hear that? No, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying I am responsible for what is appearing in your consciousness. Like if there's an, like if there's an image of me in your consciousness right now, I'm responsible for that. And you can say, you know, like, well, you came to New York and put yourself in front of her, so you're responsible. Okay? But when I leave New York and you, and you think of me and see a picture of me in your mind, I'm still responsible for that. I'm responsible for that, too. But I don't, I don't you know, create this nice picture of me or this ugly picture of me. I can't do that. But I contribute to it. I'm responsible for it. And you don't actually make a nice picture of me. Or, you know, like People look at me and they say, you're changing. You keep changing. They can't keep me even looking a, looking a certain way, you know. Oh, now you're an old man. Now you, the people. Say, now you look like an old man. Now you look like a baby. Now you look like a girl, you know. They just watch me. It's, you know and say, What are you? What are you doing? They say to me. I'm not. I'm just being me, of course. But you, But the cog, the creative process makes me change in your mind over time. But you're not in charge of that. That amazing process of appearance and disappearance, but you're responsible for it. To pay to it. If you pay attention to it, you're responsible for paying attention. If you don't pay attention, you're responsible for not paying attention. If you have a conversation with it, you, you're responsible for the conversation. If you try to avoid the conversation, whatever is going on in your mind is your karma, you're responsible. But I'm also responsible because I'm included in you. My consciousness pervades yours. And no matter what you think, I, can re- I do respond to you. Wherever I am, I'm responding to you. Now, getting back to what you talked about before in your consciousness and told us about, Zen students, particularly those who close their eyes, and not supposed to, right, (laughs) as they sit sometimes for a long time, they get these unusual or unforeseen, unprecedented senses of their body. Like when they first sit down, they think my body is like has a torso and legs and arm. And even if they keep their eyes open, they sometimes feel like their arms have just become bigger than a mountain. It's like my arms—I feel like my arms are expanding. I feel my my body seems to be being inflated into a huge thing. This is like what I'm thinking. You know, I can have my eyes open or shut. And feel like my body's getting in very strange shapes and that I never felt before, I never thought of before. So there's something about us that we have agreed on, you know, that we have arms and legs. But this is like a conventional agreement. Our actual body is really these sense organs, and these sense organs can. You know, they usually make us think that our body is a certain shape, but these sense organs can give us new information and we can relax and let new versions of our body appear in our mind. Our body is actually more or less infinite. So, therefore, it can take on many, many forms. But for convenience, we don't let that happen.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, and I should, we don't. I, I shouldn't say we don't let it happen. We we do not allow ourselves to be open to it and let it happen. So when you shut your eyes, you can get these new versions of what's going on in the forest, because a lot more is going on there than you can conceive of. But if you relax, you can let. New stuff come into your clearing about your own body. But, but many of us, because we're not practicing being kind to what's appearing in our consciousness, our consciousness seems to be somewhat stuck and we seem to have kind of a, a stuck version of our body. Like you know some adults still think about themselves like. They still think their body's like they were, was in high school. We don't have to fall into that trap. But if we're in that trap, we need to be kind to being in the trap. And if we're kind to the trap, we realize the possibility of having really different versions of our body. And when you're sitting, it's a particularly good time to do it because you don't have to like get up and walk with this new body. So if you have a body that has 16 legs, or, you know, that's really all puffed up, you know, and you don't know which is your right and left, or whether you have feet anymore, you know. If you're sitting still, you can let that happen and you're not gonna fall down. But you may feel like, well, if, you know, okay, now the period's over, maybe I should like go back to my old body so I can get up and do Kenyan. Yeah, go ahead. And the next period, you can go and have new revelations of what your body might be. But whatever I think my body is, and whatever I think it is I can grasp, is not my body. Like we all we use that nice image, you know. Uh, it's like going out in the ocean, f- away from the coast, where there's no islands. And the ocean looks like a circle of water. The Atlantic Ocean is not a circle of water. The Pacific Ocean is not a circle of water. But when you're out there, that's what it looks like. And that's your conscious mind out there in the water. And same with your body. If you you get away from the coast, your body looks like a circle of water, or looks like it has arms and legs. But your body isn't the way you imagine it, or the way it's being imagined in the place where you are. You don't do the imagination, but imagination is going on where you are, and then you can say, I did it, but you didn't really do it. You're just there thinking you own it, which is normal. I own everything that's going on in my consciousness except the things I don't want to (laughs) own. And, uh, yeah, and that's, one of the illusions that's in the consciousness, which you didn't make by yourself, (coughs) the vast forest made those images in your mind. And also, the images in in your mind, the way you've been handling them for a long time, transforms the forest. So what's going on in your clearing in this moment has just transformed the forest, and then the forest Creates a new consciousness, and your consciousness then transforms the forest, and the forest makes your consciousness. And yeah, uh, and so I'm doing karma now to transform my consciousness through my unconscious and also through your unconscious. So again, if, if I close my eyes, or even with my eyes open, I can get, I can realize my body is leaping free of my ideas and my body. And the new versions are, are just new versions. My body is infinite versions of my body. That's, and those are changing all the time. And when I see a new image of my body, that changes my body. And also, if you see, if you see old versions of your body, that changes your body. Everything you think changes your body. Everything you feel, everything you want, everything you imagine about your body changes your body, and what you think about other people's bodies changes your body, which changes your mind, your conscious mind. This is, this is the process of creation of the universe, which we are living in. We are active participants in this universe. And each clearing is the center of the universe. I should say, a center. And, we're re- and, and, the, and, and that center responds to everything. And so that center is responsible. But that center does not make itself. You don't make your consciousness. Your consciousness does not make your consciousness. There's language in your consciousness. But your consciousness doesn't make language. We, All of us together, all of our consciousnesses and and all of our cognitive processes that are not consciousness (laughs) make language which appears in consciousness. And we can use this language to understand how to exercise our responsible conversation. And that involves being having a responsible conversation with how our body appears in our consciousness. And I'm having a conversation with you, and I'm saying, you know, it's Mm -hmm. generally speaking kind of a good thing if you let yourself have new imaginations about your body. But again, you can't make new imaginations. They're given to you when you're a good girl. You get a reward for being kind to, your, to the Im- images of your body that are appearing in your mind. The reward for that is you get ones you've never seen before. Because you, you wouldn't let yourself see them because you weren't kind to the ones that were, that were there. Like you were holding on too tight. So then, OK, we're not going to show you anything new if you refuse. Yeah. So, But we're not trying to get new images. But we do get them when we relax. And then, we, you know, and then we see these images of our body doing all kinds of amazing things, like going over to a teacher and having face-to-face transmission. <laughs> right? Are you following that? But that's an image of it. And then we say, well, how can I enact that? Now, how, did, how am I doing with you now?
4: Thank you very well. And um, what I, I wanted to say, uh, it's reassuring. Uh, and I also wanted to say, I think in my, I don't even think of it as bodies. And I was thinking, you have brought uh, up uh, a lot of uh, literary figures in these last few days. And for some reason, uh, I was thinking of Murakami's novels where. Um, you know, the worlds that sometimes uh, the doors open to are like, it's a, it is not of this world, it doesn't seem. Like there are, there is a, there might be place where Lisa, two-year-old is hidden or something. You know, it's like, a, and everybody here is there. <laughs> um, yeah, hmm and uh, as you say, and Laura knows uh, that I was really struggling to come to like. Uh, and when I'm struggling for be here, it's all my body's all physical pain. And when I can relax, as you say, then
0: when you can do what relax mm-hmm. or, you know, when you can, when I can yeah be a good girl. yeah <laughs> and when you can have a when you can have a kind a compassionate conversation with the pain. Well, anyway, it can. You can allow it. It can be allowed to go away. It isn't necessary anymore. It's done its job. Its job, its job is to call to you to have a conversation. The pain's calling to you, Would you pl- to have a conversation. If you have a conversation, the, the pain's done its job. And, and then the next call will come, which might be a different pain, or we'll see. It's not really gone. But, and you, also, you can realize it's not really gone. And also, it never really came. And you can realize that if you're kind to the coming, to the illusion of the coming of the pain. But sometimes we don't see the coming of the pain. We just say, oh, it's already here. I didn't see it come. And it's calling to me for compassion. And good girls are compassionate to their pain. And then they're rewarded by wisdom. And on the way to wisdom, you start to relax with it and play with it and realize the creative reality of pain is that it's infinite. And anything's possible with this pain. For example, it could easily be pleasure. But basically, pain is not pain. That's, that's the most basic thing about pain. And the basic thing about you that you're not you. But to realize that, you have to be kind to you in conversation. You know, like, I just want to say one more thing before I call on Alex. I just, um,
2: I'm <laughs> interpreting what you're saying a certain way, and I'm curious what you think
0: of it. And can I just say one little thing? Of course. She said, I'm interpreting. Another way to say it is. Interpretation is going on in my consciousness, and I'm there. I'm my and I and I and I'm tempted and I'm tempted to think that I'm doing the interpretation. But anyway, interpretation is going on in our consciousnesses right now. I don't know who's doing it. Yes?
2: That Buddhism is offering then is offering certain grounding um, or like a rope hang on to a little bit, whether it's Sazen or the precepts, or a few other things, and that if we commit ourselves to holding on to that rope, those few things, that we can open our eyes and our mind to the infinite possibilities of, of reality, and we don't have to be afraid, and that, we, that the infinite possibilities of reality is beyond our wildest imaginations and beyond any, any reality that we can construct. And that that what Buddhism is offering us is just that little bit of rope that we need to stay, to to not completely float up, you know, just basically to survive while we open our minds to this sort of pain is not pain and pleasure is not pleasure. And it's Mm -hmm. all just this infinite Mm -hmm. possibility. Mm -hmm. And that, that what Buddhism is just offering us is that little anchor that we need to stay
0: I think it's offering. I think it's offering more than that little, that little rope. But, yeah. uh, well, it, it can be a it can be a rope. We can start with calling it a rope. It's fine. But when you say when you say Buddhism's uh, offering us a little rope, I just felt like you didn't uh, you didn't acknowledge the, the offering. The offering is kind of more basic than the rope.
1: <coughs>
0: Buddhism is offering.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. That's basically what's going on. It's offering. And then it can offer anything, like it can offer a rope. But it's not the rope that's the point. It's just a rope is an offering for you to understand that an offering has been made. So it offers you a rope. And then you might think, thanks for the rope. See you later. But then, Buddhism, but then Buddhism offers you something else. It's, a rope that you can take another handle on? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's offering you a chance to get a hold of the rope. It's offering you the rope. It's offering you also a chance to do your usual thing and to grab the rope. It's, it's going to let you grab it. It's offering you something to grab. Actually, it's offering you something. And also you could write it from the beginning you could just say, thank you, I'm not gonna take it. Cause I understand it's not a rope. And that's your offering back to Buddhism. So Buddhism mm. wisely offers you things. And if you and, and if you're into grasping, you can grasp them. And then you can grasp them again. And Buddhism can offer you a chance to continue to do it, but it's also offering you a conversation and asking you what you're doing with the rope. It doesn't just give you the rope and walk away. It stays with you and says, what are you doing with that rope? And you say, uh, well, I, I'm, I'm grasping it. And then it says, OK. And then you do it again. It's, uh, what are you doing now? I did it again. <laughs> OK. Uh, you, can, shall we continue this conversation? Well, yes, uh and then you get—I don't know what—you grab it again, and Buddhism said, "Did did you notice that?" And you say, "Yeah." Well, how? What's going on? You know. So Buddhism is really offering you a relationship, and you might think it's offering you a rope. So fine, take it as a rope, but then pay attention. It's not just let. it's not not the end of the story, it's going to stay with you. And by conversing with you while grabbing the rope, you will understand the rope is not the rope. And then and also you'll understand that the rope is not the rope is justice to the rope. and you'll also understand that it's this conversation which is the realization of the rope is not the rope and the rope's infinite and there's nothing to be afraid of. So if you whatever it is, you can say it. But that's, that's what sets up the conversation. It's what you call it? a conversation piece. <laughs> Buddhism offers you conversation pieces. And for some people, it's a rope. For some people, it's a ball. For some people, it's a scripture. For some people, it's a picture of somebody sitting upright and so then you can like, take the rope of upright posture. And then somebody can come up to you and say, uh, what are you doing? And you can say, thinking, not thinking. So if you look at uh, one of the main ropes in Zen is the sitting posture. That's kind of the rope that we often use. And then these people who are sitting, people come up to them and talk, ask them what they're doing and they have conversations about what this rope is and yeah, so what kind of a rope is this you know what kind of a sitting in this is this i'm sitting not sitting what kind of thinking are you doing when you're sitting i'm think i'm thinking liberate i'm thinking which liberates thinking and so on so yes we do give something but that giving is because you asked for it and you might not have noticed it but anyway it's a response and then you respond, and it's, Buddhism is you in conversation with everything. And it could be a rope. It could be anything. And in fact, all day long, it is whatever you're involved with in conversation. And that will liberate you from your mind, which is this wonderful, powerful thing, which is kind of entrapping. We're only going to be free of it by being really kind to it. And we need help to become, we can't get out of our mental entrapment except by a conversation in language with other trapped or liberated consciousnesses. Yes? I saw that low one.
3: I think uh, talked about the neurobiology matter in mind. And then in uh, answering Mark, you gave a very uh, clear and detailed uh, description of a traditional Buddhist understanding of the way consciousness uh, arises from these (coughs) material conditions.
0: And also, apparently, material conditions. And also, apparently, not material conditions, which is the previous. Mind. So mind arises from material and not material.
3: Okay. So um, when you first brought up the neurobiological, you know, modern science aspect of this, what came to me was the question, uh, isn't it the case that uh, science still doesn't understand consciousness? Isn't cannot it? define how consciousness arises from the various material conditions, which they are able to observe in greater and greater precision.
0: Did you say, isn't that possible?
3: Isn't it the case that they have not yet grasped scientifically a connection between?
0: Yes, it, it, it is the case that they have not grasped what anything is.
3: <coughs> I think there's something specific. Pardon. Something very specific about not being able. To I don't know. Or
0: there's define and there's grasp. I don't know about. I don't know. I don't know much about definitions, but I I know a little bit about grasping, and I know that science has not grasped what consciousness is, and some scientists are totally uh, on board with that comment. They they they're trying, and they say we can't grasp it, and some think they have. But also the Buddhist description. Uh, and some Buddhists a long time ago thought that that description grasped what consciousness was. That's called the first teaching that was given, and some of the Buddhists thought that that description, or in their associated descriptions, actually grasped what consciousness was. Then we had to have the what we call the second turning. <laughs> Another teaching had to come along to liberate. These minds which thought they understood the first, that they thought they grasped the first teaching. Some people heard the first teaching and didn't think they grasped it. They just listened to it compassionately and listened to themselves compassionately while they were listening and listened to other people talk. They just had this conversation and they received the teaching and they didn't grasp it and they opened to what it was, which is. That's the point of the teaching, is to help us open to the teaching, <laughs> to free us from our idea. So s- some scientists know that they have not grasped consciousness. And I'm saying nobody will ever grasp anything. Uh, that's the perfect wisdom, is not grasping anything, but also under, is realizing that there's no basis to grasp. But that doesn't stop people from grasping, and doesn't stop you from trying to grasp.
3: It doesn't stop me from not having yet fully gotten
0: to my question. No, it doesn't stop you from that. But it also doesn't stop you from having fully got to your question, which you don't understand that you have. <laughs> it doesn't stop you from missing that point. You can go right ahead and miss the point that, you, that you're complete. Go right ahead. Uh, may I go ahead? You definitely.
3: Okay.
0: <laughs> and, and maybe you will.
3: Because uh, I, what you just described, the first turn, and the second turn, and so on, seemed to uh, take place in the responses that you gave this morning, starting with the response to Mark. And then as a, uh, your description of the forest and the, uh, the body uh, expanded greatly, it seemed to shift the ground of that uh, original description. So you've said several times during the retreat, uh, that in the clearings, the consciousnesses pervade all the other consciousnesses. Mm -hmm. And uh, there does not, uh, until the, possibly now, it's a little more uh, answered, but um, I did not see a physical basis for the consciousnesses pervading all the consciousnesses. I mean, I see it when we're all in the same room with the wall here, but... All of the consciousnesses globally. There's not a physical basis for those that probation. Apparent.
0: No you, apparent can't, you, can't see, you can't. You can't see. You can't see it.
3: So when you expanded, uh,
0: the but you, but can you see any basis for it? I can't see any basis for it myself, physical or non-physical. Well, just
3: uh, no. But as you expand the, the description of the body, then it seems that there. So in the non-apparent body that there's then also the possibility of a, this uh, foundation for, for the pervasion that you described. So you would say that's still grounded in the material.
0: No, I didn't say that, but I heard you say... I, I, didn't, I didn't say any of what you said there, but I, when you said... when I didn't say, until now, I didn't say possibility, but I heard you say it. And you said there was a possibility. I think there's a possibility that all of our consciousnesses are pervading each other. I do too. And I think that my conscious a possibility that my consciousness is being pervaded by all of yours. And mine's pervading all yours. I think there's a possibility of that. However, whatever anybody th- thinks is how it's happening, it's happening. In an other way than that, so if if and it's fine to try to find I don't know explore the field with the spirit of the possibility of something appearing about this, like an appearance of how your consciousness is pervading mine. But I just want to say that light is invisible, so the light of your consciousness. In your consciousness is illuminated by everything that's dark. The light of your consciousness pervades mine, but I do not. uh, But there's no appearance of that other than my consciousness. The way you're illuminating my consciousness, the way you illuminate my consciousness, is my is my consciousness. It, but you know, it also includes the way everybody else is illuminating my consciousness. But to see the illumination, I do, I've never seen anything about that, and that's why some people, and Mr. Murakami might be one of them, Mr. Murakami, Mr. Murakami oh. they might put Buddhism over into religion, and I'm not fighting that. Mr. And Mr. Murakami kind of like he seems to have some. Concerns about religion. He's, you know, he's, he sometimes seems to be, have some sense that they're not doing it helpful. I'm not saying Buddhism's a religion or not. I'm just saying when I'm putting my, when I'm betting on a life <coughs> of thinking about the way something I can't see is functioning as me, somebody might say, "Well, that sounds like maybe religion." You believe in that? I believe in living according to that. Which again, leads me to I'm responsible for you, because my mind is pervading your mind. But also, you're responsible for me. It leads me to this sense of mutual responsibility. I go for that kind of life, which means I go for refuge in Buddha, because that's what I think Buddha is. I think Buddha is what's pervading us and helping us realize that that's going on. But I don't mind people trying to find some kind of like uh, more information about how this might be going on. But that's still not going to ever grasp the process.
3: I, I think I um, uh, got I had a hard time early in the morning understanding something you said as being consistent with everything you just said now. That now I think it
0: makes sense. Uh And I actually was recently looking at the thing. one of the things I was thinking of saying, which I decided not to say, I'm not going to say now, which is in the room I'm staying is in, uh, the room I'm sleeping in and bathing in. There was a book, a big, really fat book by Murakami. And uh, his concern about possible harm of religion led me to um, just check out what the population of the different religions are in the world. And part of what I found out was there's a lot of people who are atheists, Agnostics. Um, what's the other category? Anyway, people who are sort of a, n- a non-religious category, secular. The people in the non-religious category, there's a billion of them, and I feel I'm happy about that. I feel like they're, 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 conversation promoters. And but I think, and 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 Buddhism. Uh, I think uh, it prom- wants to promote a conversation between all the religions. I think part of the harm is lack of conversation practice. And I don't, that I don't know if that's a religious view. I think it could be a secular view, too, that I see stress among the different religions, and I see difficulty of having conversation. But I also see stress within all the groups and I hope for conversation within all the groups. So again, if we can generate conversation in our sangha, we can generate justice in our sangha and the justice which we generate by responsible conversation, according to my understanding, will get transmitted to all the other consciousnesses and our ongoing effort to r- realize justice is being transmitted to other consciousnesses. And I I can't see how that's happening. It's a transmission to me, and I don't know how I got it. I, I can tell you stories about it, but that's not how I got it. And it's now a transmission to you, and I don't know how you get it. but it's a transmission of face to it's a face to face transmission about face to face transmission and face to face transmission i'm saying is justice and if you practice it you're transmitting it and by the way all this transmission of justice is going on in stillness which is part of the style of this justice building tradition is to practice stillness. And that chant we've been doing, it describes the conversation of justice that's occurring in stillness. So we do the stillness as part of our opening the conversation of justice. It's part of our style. That's, that's our rope, the rope of stillness and I see you, but John's been really trying to get my attention, and, and he, he did get it. Now I'm just going to say, what? yes, John. Um, when I hear the word justice, I tend to think
2: of its political aspects, and in that spirit I'd like to respond to what you said earlier about our uh, legal system and the uh, respect they show people. I'd say a lot of the time. I think it's uh, pretense, and they don't now,
0: so you you want to tell us that you think uh, there's a lack of respect in our conversations? No. No. Well, in our in our political conversations. One could see, one could have a hard time finding respect these days.
1: And,
0: also so, and I agree, it does seem to, I do see like, like where's the respect? I see people talking, but where's the respect? So, like that Louis Armstrong song, I see friends shaking hands, saying, How do you do? They're really saying, I love you. But when I see friends shaking hands, spitting in their faces, I have hard trouble understanding that they're being respectful. I'm trying to open my eyes to respect is reality by practicing it. And if I think somebody's not being respectful, I think what I should be doing is to try to be respectful of the one who's not who I can't see as respectful. Now if I see somebody who's respectful, then I also want to be respectful to her. It isn't like I don't practice respect when I see respect, but when I don't see respect in political and social situations, I believe in practicing respect towards disrespect is the path to justice. I believe that practicing respect towards injustice is the path to justice. Bodhisattva precepts are precepts of respect.
2: When you mentioned the political conversation, I just wanted to stress that I am pointing most specifically to our legal systems and our court cases and the way certain
0: people are treated in our systems. Yeah, and you're, you're saying you don't see respect there. And I, I see that too. However, I do sometimes see respect. And when I see respect, I think, wow, amazing. They're, they're being respectful as they take this person to be executed. No, if they take the person to be executed. I think you can take somebody to be executed in a respectful way. You said to kill
3: was
0: not respectful. I, I said take them to the... I didn't say kill them. Oh. They're on their way to be killed. At, at the point of killing, I would say that's not respectful. You can respect people right now, and then later, somehow, it seems like you can lose track of it.
3: So you can say, Mr. Smith, please stand and plead within a, an entire empirical system that has not respected Mr. Smith up until the moment that you
1: say
0: Mr. Smith. I'm saying whatever you just described there. <laughs> I'm saying whatever you described there, at that moment, it's possible to respect the situation. In that moment? Yeah. And that's where we practice respect, in that moment. doesn't mean that I'm saying I've been practicing respect my whole life. Matter of fact, I have missed some opportunities. But right now, I'm trying. And then it's a conversation where somebody can say, I think you missed. And I'm saying, I want to listen to somebody telling me I missed an opportunity. It's possible in whatever process it is to be kind step by step by step. And it's also possible, whatever the process is, to be kind and then miss the chance, and then catch it and miss it. Killing is not justice. But when there is killing going on, there can be justice at the same time. Disrespect is not justice, but there can be respect at the same time as disrespect and that's actually what I'm saying, is that when there's the delusion of killing, when there's the delusion of stealing, when there's a the delusion of injustice, when there's the delusion of disrespect, simultaneously there is respect and justice and compassion. Compassion simultaneous with whatever delusion you want to name, whatever corrupt system, Compassion's right there. We don't really have to develop the delusion; we have plenty. We have to develop the compassion, and I'm all saying I'm saying it's already there. We need to wake up to it, and we wake up to it by conversation about it, and um, I feel that um, since I have to go to the airport, (laughs) I probably should stop talking pretty soon, even though I feel you are really interested in justice and respect and peace. And you want your life to promote it. And you're happy to keep talking about it. And I hope you do. And I hope I do too. Not hope. I want you to, and I want you to too, and if I forget to be respectful, I want to be called on it, and if I remember, I feel good, and I want to try again.
1: Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.